Hi, this is Eleni Manis from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, and this is Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 352 for November 27th, 2023. We've got another great interview for you today. I'll be talking with Eleni Manis from the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, or STOP. You may remember that we talked to Albert Fox Khan and Evidenzer back in May, uh, some of the same organization. That was another great interview. But I wanted to talk to Eleni about smart cities. She's been doing some great work in this area up in New York City, uh, but it applies to cities all around the U.S. and honestly all around the world. Sensors have gotten cheap and they've been throwing sensors of all sorts into just about everything and putting everything on the cloud and everything on the internet. And so we're getting these massive networks of devices that are listening and watching and measuring and taking in a lot of data. And I, I get it. I understand why a lot of cities could find this useful. They've got limited budgets, limited resources. They want to know, you know, where people are spending their time, where they might want to put those resources. I, I get it. And I'm sure there are some good uses for these things. But unfortunately, these sensors can also be used for invading your privacy, basically mass surveillance. Uh, they can contribute to over-policed neighborhoods. There, there are a lot of downsides. So we're going to get into all that today with Eleni. So I hope everybody, uh, at least in the U.S., had a pleasant Thanksgiving last week. Uh, and now it's official. Now you can start playing Christmas music. Uh, I kind of got on my high horse about that last week. I, I really just feel you got to keep these seasons a little tighter. But I, I love this time of year, and so I'm very much looking forward to it. Just as a reminder, uh, last week we talked about my best and worst gift guide, my annual thing where I talk about the best and worst gifts for privacy and security. So if you missed that episode, you definitely want to go back and check it out. Uh, if you haven't read the article yet, the blog article, there's actually a lot more information there and a lot more links to some more useful information. Uh, so you'll definitely want to go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and check out that article. And also, this is the time of year to give thanks. Uh, this is a great time to donate money to a lot of really great organizations who are out there fighting the good fight for us all day, every day, 24-7, 365, and doing great, great work uh, that is very, very important. So we have a lot of these folks uh, on the show, but I want to make sure that we're thinking about them at times like this. And, you know, it, it really does help. And like I said in the article, uh, if you go to fdsd.me slash thanks, you can read the whole thing. But usually when you give money to these organizations, they'll send you a little something. They'll send you some stickers or a hat or a t-shirt or, or whatever. Wear it with pride uh, and spark some conversations. People might say, hey, what's what's the Electronic Frontier Foundation? Or what's the Center for Democracy and Technology? Or who's Fight for the Future? Or who is STOP? Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. It's a great way to you know, have that conversation and spread the word about the good things these people are doing. All right, so just real quick before we get to the interview, I think you know, from the glossary perspective, there's really only maybe one term I think we threw out that was not well-defined, and that is CCOPS, which is short for Community Control of Police Surveillance. And we've talked about these laws before on the show. Probably We probably talked about these with Albert Foxconn back in May. Uh, but we've, we've talked about them other times too. Uh, and these are very interesting programs that basically require buy-in from the, from the public um, and certainly transparency about what sorts of systems are going into smart cities that people might have a problem with, might want to provide some feedback on. 
So really, a lot of the problem with this stuff is that these sensors are being put in without transparency, without people really knowing what they're, what they're doing, where they are, how they're being used, who gets access to the data, how long is that data kept, is it maybe even sold onto third parties, even if it's supposedly done anonymously. It, it, we're really lacking in transparency. And of course, here in the US, we're lacking in privacy regulation that might protect us from some of these things. So anyway, I don't, I don't want to spoil anymore. We're about to get deep into this with Eleni. So without further ado, here's our interview with Eleni Manis from Stop. Eleni Manis is a research director at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, aka STOP, uh, which is a New York City nonprofit that pushes back on government abuses of surveillance technology. And in her previous career, she was a philosophies professor. Welcome to the show, Eleni. Thanks, Carrie. Well, glad to have you here. This is going to be a really interesting topic. Uh, but before we do, I've got to ask, you know, how, how did you go from being a philosophy professor to being a research director at STOP? Yeah. And then, you know, why did you focus on smart cities? I got into tech ethics after a career as an academic ethicist, um, specifically, okay. as you said, as, as a philosophy professor. It's it's 10 years now. I was a philosophy professor on the tenure track at a small liberal arts college. My expertise lay in ethics and political philosophy. So what it means to treat other people ethically, what it means to live in a just society. But research in academic philosophy is fairly theoretical, it's also an awfully solitary endeavor. Mm -hmm. I wanted to work in collaboration with people on problems where there's an immediate and tangible need for solutions. That's what motivates me. So I thought, where, where does it really, really matter that we get the answers to the problems of justice right? And, you know, one clear location is the, is the tech space. Companies are producing and, and selling tech tools faster then policymakers can regulate them for sure uh, faster than our social norms are evolving to cover them. Yeah. So, for example, questions that have crossed my desk this week is: Is it okay to automate resume review as an employer? Is it okay to monitor students or employees' computer activity? Is it okay to plaster our cities with cameras or license plate readers or other kinds of smart sensors that we'll be talking about? Like, what are the privacy costs? What are the risks to the rights that uh, we hold sacred in a democratic society? You know, these questions are as interesting as anything I ever worked on as an academic philosopher. And it, it oh, matters a lot more that we get the questions right, get the answers to them right. So, so I left academia. And uh, first I did some stints in city government, um, working on tech policy, trying to change the system from inside. That was frustrating. Uh, so now I work for an advocacy organization that pushes uh, local and state governments to do better. Uh, that's the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. Stop. So to your question, why smart cities tools? Why does somebody like me, who's primarily interested in law enforcement abuses, worry about cities plastering their streets with sensors to measure the temperature or the air quality or traffic flow or utility usage or mm -hmm. pedestrian habits? And it's because law enforcement frequently has access to municipal mm -hmm. data and they use it. Uh, immigration agencies use that utility data to figure out when people are home um, and to apprehend people whose only uh, offense is overstaying their visas. Police use it to target communities of color, protesters, undocumented Americans, other over-policed communities. But we should we should back up, right, and talk about what, what smart cities are. Yeah, absolutely. Tell yeah, me. it's great branding, isn't it? You know, smart cities, smart light bulbs. <laughs> sure. 
Who doesn't right, want right. to be smart instead of stupid? Um, <laughs> <clears throat> but it, it's an abuse of, of the word smart. So what smart means depends a little bit on the context. Smart gadgets, like a smart light bulb is, is internet connected. So you can adjust a smart thermostat or unlock a smart door with your, uh, with an app on your phone. But in the context of smart cities, uh, smart just means plastered with sensors and, and sometimes cameras. So smart traffic lights monitor traffic. Sometimes they adjust traffic lights to ease traffic flow. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they either connect with driver's cell phones or uh, they capture license plate data. These, these cameras that can capture that license plate data. Smart tech in schools can scan for loud noises. It can spy on students' laptops. It can watch students taking exams. Smart meters track people's electricity or water usage can possibly help people reduce their, their demand at peak times. So that's what, that's what we're talking about when we say smart cities. So, so call it smart cities. I understand that. I mean, cities have, you know, limited budgets and limited resources. Mm-hmm. And so they want to make sure they're spending their money properly, not just, you know, because they've got their budgets, because they report to their citizens and they've yeah. got to, you know, show that they're being, you know, responsible with the money that they've been taking in through tax dollars. So, you know, I understand how they want to collect all these metrics um, and try to be more efficient. I, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a laudable goal. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned some of the benefits already. And how how long have we been using these things for things like urban planning and, and traffic stuff? Is this a relatively new thing? Let, let's talk about the positive aspects before we get dig into the negatives. Is there anything else that, that's actually shown benefit from doing these sorts of uh, metrics? Right. So the use of these sensors and internet-connected technologies has increased as the cost of collecting data has gone down. Mm, um, sure, yeah. And as the speed of internet has gone up, so I'd say in the past 20 years or so, we've seen more and more cameras and other kinds of sensors being used. But to your question, you know, what are the benefits of, of collecting mountains of data? There are no predictable benefits to collecting mountains of data in an, in an indiscriminate way. So you can't collect mm. vast quantities of data, dump it on an overburdened city agency and say, good luck. I hope you can use this. <laughs> there are benefits to identifying questions that can be answered with data, figuring out whether you already have that data, and if not, you know, collecting data that are that'll answer the question accurately and efficiently. So, for example, who lacks access to, to public transit? We need to know who and who isn't using public transit in New York City where I live. Let's figure out what data would actually answer that question. New York City has a cashless payment system for its subways and buses. It's called Omni. Mm-hmm. If we were to rely on Omni to tell us who's riding the subway, we would miss everybody who's paying cash for a MetroCard. Mm. So it's not it's not all it cracks up to be. You have to be very careful about what kinds of data you're using to answer questions that matter to you. But Omni aside, it's it's expensive and it's pointless to pay for sensors that collect data that may or may not meet a need. You told me that you wanted to talk about ShotSpotter. Yeah. So let's talk about ShotSpotter. For the audience, this is a collection of sensors that supposedly locate gunshots. But the big, biggest study of, of ShotSpotter, it came out of Chicago, showed that ShotSpotter just wastes officers' time. <laughs> it doesn't help solve crimes. It doesn't reduce crimes in neighborhoods a year or two after installation. It might well give cities data on where guns are being shot. It's muddy data, right? ShotSpotter also gets confused by fireworks. It gets confused by cars backfiring. But the data that ShotSpotter supplies doesn't help solve gun crimes, retrieve guns, discourage gun crimes. 
Hmm. It's extraordinarily expensive for data that doesn't do those things. So New York City's contract just renewed for $22 million over three years. That's over $7 million a year. Chicago's contract, over $8 million a year. Wow. That's a lot of money for sensors that collect data that the cities can't use to improve public safety. Huh. Okay, so I just turned your question on its side. Um, let me <laughs> let me give you another another answer. Just just to be fair, if you collect data carefully, with cities' actual interests in mind, with concern for their privacy, um, you know, thinking about data retention and who has access, with civil rights front and center, you can do good. So air sensors can be used to track pollution. Sound sensors could be used to track sound pollution if that data isn't available to police to harass city residents. Smart meters could save electricity by telling users, like we said, to reduce demand when there's peak demand, but but it's only worth it if immigration agencies don't have access to that data. I would say that the one of my key criteria as somebody who works for, for STOP is that municipal data needs to be kept safe from police access to be worth it. Yeah, interesting. So it, we all kind of put it under one government umbrella, but there definitely should be bright lines between certain agencies within that government, right? As far as how that data is accessed and used, right? That's exactly right. Where and how are these things being deployed? Like, it, is it just in big cities like like New York? Is it happening in smaller cities as well? Is it being deployed because governments are asking for it and installing it? Is our third parties knocking on the door saying, hey, we got this cool thing we want to sell you? But, you know, how's it? How's that work? Yeah. Well, if you take one representative technology, automated license plate readers, they are everywhere in every community. And everything's got a camera built into it these days, right? It's like some designer yeah, right. said, cameras make things better. Um, you know, got a smoke detector, add a camera. Have it a traffic light. That's a great place to put a camera. And connected um, to the internet, yeah. right? You got also, it's got to be in the cloud. Right, right, right. How about your doorbell? Like, put a camera on sure. it. Um, you know, sure. students and employees, laptops, well, those already have cameras, but let's build some <laughs> software so we can collect data using those cameras. So there is a big push from industry to sell I've called surveillance technology, but, you know, sensors, smart cities, data, smart cities, uh, tech nationwide. Do we have any statistics on like how many municipalities are, are installing these things? Like how prevalent this is across the, the United States? Uh, I mean, one place to check would be companies own websites, right? So ShotSpotter mm-hmm. will tell you that it's up to something like 211 cities nationwide. But it's it's impossible to tell how many cameras are out there right now. Sure. And there are there are a ton. And I know that some of the stuff that's going on, too, is it's it's kind of coming from both sides. There's the people that are selling to try to install this technology. And then there's all these cameras that are already out there where companies are saying, hey, if you just give us these feeds, we could do processing, post-processing on the cameras that already exist uh, to do things. That <laughs> because we're putting sensors everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And if you're talking about cameras, I mean, they can be used to reveal people's commutes, to track them to their places of worship. To track them to abortion clinics and other sensitive sites in parks, cameras, including drones, can be used to spy on protesters, chilling freedom of speech. And all of that camera footage can be fed into facial recognition systems, um, destroying public, you know, privacy and in public spaces. So. Right. There's even weird stuff like gate recognition. Like if, if, if they know who you are at one point, they could figure out who you are somewhere else just by looking at how you walk and things like that. It's, it's amazing what we could do. Scary <laughs> what we could do with this with some of this AI technology. All right, so you've already mentioned this a little bit, but let you know what are some of the more concerning of these? Te- if you had to pick some of your top three, like what are some of the most concerning technologies that are being deployed, and, and how might some of the ones in particular that are really benign seeming being abused, like ones that we really might think, oh, well, how that's harmless? How how could that possibly be a problem? Right, you know, ones that might surprise us. I think cameras at the top of my list when it comes to utterly 
expansive use of surveillance technology in, in public spaces. Beyond that, I mean, I've, I was about to say, I worry about automated license plate readers, which are cameras that uh, sure. track, that track, you know, that uh, pick up license plates and can be used effectively to track people coast to coast because the sharing of that data is so, so complete. What a lot of people may not realize is that a lot of these companies are third-party companies that are doing these things, and so they're all they're centralized. So it's not just that New York has this information or Chicago has this information. Some of these things are being shared through because they're con- probably contracted out to companies that are that are doing this for them, and therefore they're networked uh, between cities too. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Especially through things like fusion centers, which enable local to state to federal sharing of databases. Hmm. License plate data in California can be in New York or Missouri or Texas instantaneously. So that's not just through third parties. That's actually through the governments because it, partially, I think, because of 9-11, right? There was a lot. One of the things we got, you know, we learned from the 9-11 commission was there was not a lot of, there's a lot of silos. There wasn't a lot of talking between the various agencies. And I think since then, and certainly since the growth of the Internet, a lot of these governments, you know, local, federal and state have started talking more and sharing more data. Is that right? That's correct. I Okay, if we get off of smart cities for a moment. Yeah, go ahead. So fusion centers were were organized after 9-11 ostensibly for counterterrorism purposes. Most don't focus on that. They help local police departments do whatever is needed, right, to prove their utility. So ordinary policing, anything that's needed locally, and a lot of that amounts to data sharing, um, enabling access to license plate readers, enabling access to facial recognition, enabling access to the kinds of resources that a local police department strapped for cash might not have. Hmm. You asked me what kind of smart cities data or smart cities devices were. I mean, most the, the data that comes out of schools is particularly worrisome to me. Mm-hmm. In the era of, of, of school shootings and concern about school shootings, sensors are being installed in schools to try to figure out when there's a threat of violence. Sound sensors, other kinds of sensors, cameras, sensor, this isn't a sensor, but software that scans students' internet searches or files for any indication of um, being likely to harm or self-harm. And who's who's monitoring these things? Oftentimes it's police. And so you might have a student who's in a mental health crisis or who needs help. But the response is via local police, who are you know notoriously bad at dealing with mental health crises, huh. and destroys trust between students um, and their and their you know guidance counselors and, and teachers. So I never I never really um, thought about that, but I guess I assumed since there were sensors in the school that there was like some sort of a network operation center. I mean, schools probably don't have that, but some room where there where where this is being fed, where there's somebody. In the school, like part of the school system was watching and uh, for these alarms. No, this yeah, is- I mean maybe Monday to Friday, nine to three. But who's picking up on uh, Saturday or hmm. after hours or something like that? Um, so there's a lot of concern with student data being released to police, especially when we worry about students who might be undocumented or already on the radar of police. It's just not the job of schools to help police their own students. So I got to ask, is there? Especially when it comes to schools, when we're talking about minors, what is the permission system for that? Like, do they do they go to the parents and do they have to sign off on this? And what happens if they don't? Like, I assume the kids weren't given a choice. <laughs> what, how, yeah, well, I mean, how, a lot of the this, rights- right? Um, um, it, it, technology that's involved in that that is installed in schools is just there. So if you want to go to school, there will be sound sensors. There may well be metal detectors. As for software installed on laptops or devices Mm -hmm. to spy on students. If you are using a school device, and this is going to disproportionately affect students who are low income, 
you agree to surveillance as a condition of using a school device. So they have you over a barrel. When it comes to the kind of software that was used during the pandemic to ensure that students suppose they weren't cheating, right? And this software right, was, right. was terrible at, at flagging uh, yeah, students. Yeah, my daughters had to install it. It was horrible. Yeah, incredibly invasive and awfully disappointing for students who whose motions or, or eye tracking might mm-hmm. not fit the, the norm that's expected by the software. If you want to take a test, you had to have it installed on your computer. Yeah. So it's very difficult to opt out of these surveillance systems. And it's really worrisome that we don't know where the data is going. It's certainly going to third-party vendors um, who may have very permissive, to pe- tend to have very permissive policies about sharing that data um, with other third parties and with law enforcement. And it may go straight to police if it's something like a harm prevention software. Wow. So one of the ones we've talked about in the show several times is the ring doorbells um, yeah. and the really cozy relationship that Amazon has cultured with local police departments to the point where almost getting the police departments to help sell the devices for them yeah. to their, their neighborhoods. That And that is one I think a lot of people don't really think about because, oh, it's a it's a video camera pointing away from my house. What it's not, it's not like I've got it in my bedroom or something. It's pointing outside. It's looking at my porch. What harm could that do? Could you talk to us a little bit about what what sort of harms that can do and, and some of the problems that uh, some of these ring networks have, have, have caused for privacy and surveillance? Yeah, absolutely. So ring doorbells, these are doorbells with cameras built into them. They're supposed to stop porch pirates. What do they actually do? Well, well, now, okay, I use mine a lot. I like to, I, I actually will look to see who's at my door. Yeah. I can actually talk to them from my basement or from across town if I'm not home. I mean, I understand the uses for it, but I also know that they're being abused. So, yeah, I mean, a variety of different ways in which they are being abused. And it depends yeah. on the app that they're linked to, right? So for Ring, mm, yes. I believe it's, it's, it's the neighbor's app. The neighbor's app is rife with overtly racist and non overt dog whistle claims that. Black mailmen, real estate agents, um, and other neighbors are up to something suspicious. Um, and police yeah. have their own dedicated portal to, to use neighbors. So it's awfully concerning that uh, doorbell cameras are, are are being used effectively to make people unwelcome in their own neighborhoods, even if they're there just living their daily lives or doing their jobs, delivering the mail, checking the meter. There are other apps. I don't know if you've heard of this, the Citizen app. Maybe, yeah. Not associated with a particular doorbell, but instead with, you know, people rushing to crime scenes to film that encourage yeah, vigilantism. Yeah, sort of a neighborhood watch kind of a thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it, that, and that's essentially what the, what the apps associated with things like the Ring doorbell do, right? They're neighborhood watch apps, but they encourage racism. They turn ordinary citizens into the long arm of the police, which I don't think, you know, that's not, it's not great for community building if we are there to um, spy on our neighbors and treat them as suspects rather than as neighbors. And the people who pay are black and brown neighborhoods. So, for example, there was a case where somebody on Neighbors or a similar app reported high schoolers organizing a Black Lives Matter protest as organizers of a riot. Yeah. So there's very little good that comes out of neighborhood watch apps and a whole lot of suspicion, groundless suspicion. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's like there's a another one. It's, it's like next door is like, is like yep. a neighborhood social media thing. And it, it's like any social media. It's got it's got good stuff and it's got really, really horrible stuff. And it really, you know, and it just kind of it, I guess it depends on maybe 
there used to be, I'll never forget. There was, there was this lady that lives across the street from me that she was, if you remember, if you're old enough to remember bewitched and Mrs. Kravitz, the nosy neighbor, she was, that was our Mrs. Kravitz. She, she was constantly putting her nose where it didn't belong. The rumor was she actually had a, a, a map of the neighborhood of the entire neighborhood in her basement with what everybody paid for their house on it, which was, I guess, public record. And, you know, and she was, she was constantly in everybody's business. Thank goodness. This was before ring doorbell. She left because she would be all up in that. Okay, okay. So, so one of the movies I love to quote or talk about is, is Minority Report, and it's a sci-fi. Just if you've never seen it, it's a sci-fi dystopian future movie. And one, of, there's several things that are unfortunately very relevant and prescient about today because it was like 20 years ago this was done. But they have what they call pre-crime, and in the in the sci-fi movie, of course, it's these beings that have the ability to see into the future. But now with all this technology, all these sensors, I know that, that we are now deploying these technologies with the, the notion of what we're calling predictive policing. So how does, how does that work exactly? And, you know, how do these systems impact the neighborhoods in which they're deployed? Predictive policing isn't anything like what it sounds like or what it promises. The, the pipe dream is that predictive policing will tell you who will commit a crime next or where crimes will happen next. But the reality is that predictive policing directs officers back to the same neighborhoods, back to the same folks that they've met in the past, and to people who resemble them. Uh, so the most notorious company, it's sent me an article about this, is, is Predpol. Changed its name to Geolitica. It's now reported that the company is going to dissolve cease operations at the end of the year. And the company that makes shot spotters is acquiring parts of it. But anyhow, Predpol Geolitica uses historical crime data, just where and when arrests happen, what the arrests were for, to try to predict where those crimes will happen in the future. But here's the problem. I mean, uh, Predpol just sends officers back to where they've been patrolling for years. You don't need tech to tell you to go back. Right. So they keep returning to low-income Black and Latinx neighborhoods. They keep over-policing minority neighborhoods. This is just dignifying racist policing, right? By telling police, keep looking where you've always looked. And meanwhile, the flip side of the coin is that richer and non-minority folks don't get arrested for the crimes that they're committing because police simply aren't patrolling those neighborhoods. And so the feedback loop is reinforced by the surveillance tech. I think what you're saying is that the idea is that is they want to prevent these crimes from happening by either, I guess, increasing patrols or right. reducing response time or whatever. But in, the, in reality, it, it's it's not preventing any crimes. I mean, has there been any evidence that show that any of these systems are actually lowering crime rates, I guess? No. I mean, there are marketing studies that sure. seem to indicate that tools work. But everything that I've seen on Predpol slash Geolitica indicates that it's not worth the money. And some some cities are simply pulling their money out. There's a reason why the company is ceasing operations at the end of the year. I understand the temptation to use the tech. You are an understaffed, cash-strapped municipality. Right. And there's kind of a tech utopianism, like tech can fix this. And there are tech sure. companies coming right. to you saying, we can help you. But it's extraordinarily expensive and it doesn't work. So a lot of cities are just going back to investing that money in their own communities. 
Well, and as a philosophy professor, I'd like to get like your perspective on this because to me, part of the problem with this whole panopticon, and mm. that is a real word, that is a that is a thing, uh, the Jeremy Bentham idea that uh, the inmates that are constantly being watched, but they don't know if they're being watched because they just so they assume they are, and yeah. that brings compliance. There is an effect to just knowing that there's all these sensors out there. So, talk to me a little bit about like this kind of the in this. You don't you don't think about the more indirect responses to some of these things when your neighborhood is laced with you know cameras and microphones and and all these things that are constantly watching you how how does that affect people well so we know that the use of cameras and surveillance technology chills freedom of speech that people are less likely to show up at protests when they're being surveilled on the flip side teenagers are going to be teenager and teenagers and do teenage stuff like smoking marijuana no matter what um, and the concern with sending officers back to these neighborhoods over and over and over again is that a bunch of kids are going to get involved in the criminal justice system just for being teenagers in an area that's over-policed, while their richer, whiter peers don't pay those consequences. So in a sense, privacy is becoming a privileged thing, right? I think that's right. Although, come to, when you think about it, everyone is yielding a lot of privacy, these days, um, especially since we all have cell phones in our pockets, typically with location data tracking enabled. Some of these smart city things, we've been talking kind of mostly about municipal sorts of things in city government, but they're also being deployed in private communities. Uh, you mentioned this a little bit. A lot of neighborhood associations, for example, I've been reading, have been installing license plate readers because they want to know who comes in and out of the neighborhood. Yeah. And building landlords. They want to, they're using facial recognition. They either want to use it to authorize people to come in and out of the building or just to keep track of yep. what faces are, are, are coming into these buildings. So how do like these these private systems differ from the ones in local government? Um, not just technologically, but like in terms of legality and the rights of those being surveilled. Is it if I'm living in a building where my landlord has deployed this, are my rights different than if I'm walking down the street and there are traffic light cameras that catch me? The last thing, by the way, to say about everybody giving up quite a bit of privacy in, in the current era is that it's over-policed communities that are going to pay more. Right. So sure. I can afford to give more of my privacy away because I'm unlikely to pay for that. Um, but you're asking about homeowners associations that are installing automated license plate readers, um, landlords installing facial recognition as a way of accessing your apartment building. What's the upshot? Well, automated license plate readers are unregulated, woefully <laughs> underregulated, whether mm-hmm. private or positive. To the rights question, though, you might well fear homeowners organizations not being accountable to the public at large and using that license plate data for more worrisome surveillance purposes. But certainly with facial recognition, the the concern with landlords taking away keys or fobs and using facial recognition or, or fingerprints to admit people to their apartments is that they're not likely to have the kinds of security practices that... That warrant, you know, collecting biometric data. I can't change my face. I can't change my fingerprint. Once you've got that, you've got it forever. Um, and it's important that that data not be leaked. The other concern is that facial recognition fails. Hmm. It, it's going to fail at night. It will fail disproportionately on people of color, women, people who are younger, people who are older. You're going to cut off access to people's homes. I worry about facial recognition yeah. in cars too. It's not a smart city's concern. They call them smart access buildings, but they're a disaster. Um, New York City, where I live, took action in, in 2021 to start to regulate tenants' use of face recognition 
Uh, but they've just started to limit how long landlords can can use the data. It's it's not enough yet. I think I read one of those articles, and and someone and someone was complaining that they didn't give them a choice. It's not like you know, here's the new technology you could use if you want, but you can yep. still use your key card or your key. It's like yep. this is it. If you want to live in this building, you have to submit to facial recognition. And people were pushing back, and I guess it, maybe that maybe that was driving some of this uh, the the response. But yeah, and there were people not being able to get in. Like you said, it was failing, and there wasn't a backup. Yeah, and you know, it's Saturday night. You know, you got to call someone to let you into the building, and you know, that's. But if you want to talk about abuses of facial recognition in the private sector, we should also talk about facial recognition being used in stadiums or event venues. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, where your, your face is your ticket. As I am sure you're aware, Madison Square Garden is uh, using facial recognition to deny entry to lawyers who are yes. suing MSG owner James Dolan. Yeah, I just um, interviewed uh, Cashmere Hill about that. Yep. yep. Yeah, yeah. The concern here, I mean, like, I don't know how much sympathy we have for 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 lawyers. <laughs> um, but a, a stadium owner or a concert venue owner could use facial recognition to for any number of events, right? So, like, they could help ICE arrest and deport people who have overstayed their visas. They could help local police arrest people who have violated parole. They in states that criminalize abortion care or gender affirming care, they could be used to apprehend people who have either recently obtained or a bit or you know. Um, serve people who, who need this kind of care. So facial recognition used in the hands of unaccountable private parties is really worrisome. And now, and this is the classic end run around the Fourth Amendment, too. A lot of the law enforcement agencies couldn't get this stuff without a warrant normally, but if they go and buy it or contract with these third-party companies that are getting it from private companies or private organizations... There's nothing that currently, there's nothing that says they can't do that. And I'm sure that these companies, like you know, the landlords, I'm sure that the landlord didn't go out and buy and install and operate this system. They probably had contracted a third party to do it. So it's really the third party is, is, is the one who has this data and they could be selling it out the back door. And they probably are because there's nothing's preventing that, I assume. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of a market there is for that. But it's really worrisome that something as sensitive as biometric data is in the hands of parties um, for whom cybersecurity is not a priority or an area of special expertise. Well, I mean, we know that location data is being sold uh, by you know a lot of apps that collect that stuff, and it's being yeah. sold to law enforcement and private investigators, mm-hmm. and, and, and basically anybody who wants to pay for it. Yep. But again, we don't have we don't have privacy laws in this country that would prevent that. So I guess I've been kind of assuming that that these things are owned by third parties. But do we know? I mean, who who owns and operates these sensor networks? And for the government agencies, are they really doing it themselves in most cases? Or do they contract to, th- uh, to third-party private companies? And then, regardless, who has access to this data? Is it beyond its original intended purpose? Do we know that this data is also being sold to uh, or and or shared with other third parties? Smart cities tech is typically leased or sold to municipal agencies but the data flows both to the company that makes the tech and to municipality. So, for example, ShotSpotter, that data goes to a center where ShotSpotter employees are processing it. ALPR data gets shared everywhere. Um, if, if a municipality or homeowners organization buys Flock ALPRs, automated license plate readers, um, that data is centralized by the company. Um, tech used in schools is particularly worrisome. Mm-hmm. Uh, the privacy policies of many ed tech companies are oh God, yeah. uh, abysmal and, you know, make special exceptions for, for explicit exceptions for allowing law enforcement access without a warrant. Hmm. 
whether it's leased or sold, it's going to depend on on the company. But I think the the key point is that for the most part, third party companies, you know, p- companies that are that are offering their tech to municipalities have access to that data. Do we already have anecdotes where I? I mean, people are people. I have to assume that somewhere out there, people working these companies are watching their ex-girlfriends or stalking somebody they're interested in. People are people. This will happen. But do we actually know of any anecdotes where where this has been shown to be the case with some of these smart city technologies being abused? I I think one thing you you wonder about is that some individuals are going to be de-anonymized. In a set of in a set of data, and the, and the first thing that comes to mind is, for example, like when the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission released anonymized data, that data was then used to re-identify people and to identify their commutes and put them at, at compromising locations. But a lot of municipal data is not going to be anonymized in the first place, right? It'll be available in an agency to individuals to use or misuse. And what you make me think of is, you know, we, we see police officers using their databases to stalk individuals improperly. Am I aware of that happening within private companies? I can't come up with an anecdote off the top of my head. Sure. But, but, I'm, but I'm sure it's happening. My concern is, is less, though, with abuses that affect particular individuals, as sensational as those stories might be, but around communities that are targeted with sensor data being misused. So ShotSpotter data is being used to send armed police into low-income Black and Latinx communities looking for an armed shooter. That's dangerous for anybody who is in their neighborhood at the time. Right. Predictive policing is similar, right? It sends police to neighborhoods looking for trouble, where they're going to find teenagers or other folks who are just out um, doing the kinds of things that teenagers do, where they're subject to arrest. If you send police to the same public housing over and over and over again, you're going to pick up crimes of poverty. So whereas you occasionally get these sensational stories of individuals being targeted by the misuse of, of sensor data or whatever kind of municipal data, I think the, the overarching concern is that entire communities are going to be victimized. And I know that a lot of these companies will, will claim that and, and do claim that when they're doing like mass collection to do like you know, traffic patterns and, and trying to do these things that involve tracking a lot of people, but don't supposedly not caring who those people are. They aggregate and they're not, they say they anonymize a lot of this data. But we also know that a lot of these me- mechanisms that are used to supposedly anonymize data don't often work. Given like one other set of data or, or a couple other uh, bits of information, you can often de-anonymize a lot of this data. Do we know many specific cases where this has occurred, like to the detriment of the individuals, where, where some company had claimed that they were collecting anonymized data or, uh, or, or aggregated data where someone was still able to figure out someone's identity and re-identify people from this data? So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with your question right now because, <laughs> in, because, no, because municipal agencies and the companies that they're contracting with are going to have access to identified data, right? Not anonymized data. And we worry about that data being abused, um, you know, say by police officers who are using data to stalk individuals, or by companies who, you know, are taking advantage of the fact that they have video footage of individuals. So what you're asked, I think what, what we should be asking is, are there cases where anonymized data gets put on something like an open data portal, and mm-hmm. then gets abused? Yeah, thereafter. I think one of the the big concerns there is that the data gets monetized. 
and repackaged and used as as a commodity for who knows what end. And again, I know I'm steering you away from sensational cases where an individual gets harmed. But we're not, you know, we're residents of a city who are not here as data sources for companies that are looking to help companies market their goods better by figuring out which one of us goes to like this store, this store, what the habits are of people in our particular neighborhoods. Um, the anonymized data that you're talking about that's going to be available on um, in New York City's open data portal, pretty much being harvested hmm. by companies that are helping market goods, target ads, help companies place themselves better. It's not exactly a civil rights abuse, but it feels like a misuse of municipal data. Um, why should we collect data at the taxpayer's cost to help companies market their goods. We should collect right. data that answers specific questions that municipalities have with no greater granularity than necessary, with no longer data retention policy than necessary. Right. Data minimization. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like one of the classic cases, and I don't remember a particular person being identified, but Netflix back in the day was saying, you know, their big thing was being able to recommend movies to you based on movies you've liked. And they wanted to improve that algorithm. And they had this huge database of all the of all their clients and all the movies they had watched and given thumbs up to or whatever. And they said, okay, we, we want help with this. We're actually going to have a contest and you will pay you if you come up with a, a weight that improves our recommendation algorithm by I think 5%. It was small, but they wanted this and they were going to pay big money. And so they released what they said was a bunch of anonymized data yeah. on people. And then some researchers picked up that data very quickly, was able to re-identify a lot of the subscribers that were supposedly scrubbed and anonymized. And so I you're right. So when we take this data from this public data, it not only could it be abused by, you know, people that should be having access to it, but it, it can be re-identified and in a lot of ways, location data in particular, they've often said that it, you know, the researcher said, if give me, you know, three or maybe four points of location for an individual that is unnamed. But if I know it's the same individual, I can often identify that information because, you know, where are they at, at one o'clock on a weekday? That's probably where they work. Where are they at eight o'clock? on a weekday. That's probably where they live. Where did they go on Sunday in a Sunday morning? That's probably where they go to church. You know, if you just have a few data points, it doesn't take long to say, well, that could only be this person. That's exactly right. And I was just thinking, if you've got somebody's Alexa, for example, you might know who they hang out with, what they listen to, where they work, that they started going to meetings on Wednesdays with a religious group, um, that they're going to mm. a protest on Friday. Right. All right. So um, the most I mean, obviously, the most prolific sensor network on the planet <laughs> consists of all the billions of cell phones that we're willingly carrying with us 24-7. Yeah. And state and local governments have used this network. You know, for instance, during the pandemic, they use it to try to do COVID trace exposure. And, yeah. I, you know, I understand them wanting to do that. And actually, Apple and Google, to their credit, came up with some pretty interesting privacy-respecting ways to kind of figure that out. I was very impressed, actually, with the tech behind that. But are government agencies working with cellular carriers or phone manufacturers mm -hmm. To, to gather this data in similar ways that they're doing with some of this other technology? Yeah. Let's back up and talk about COVID apps. That didn't really take sure. off as their makers hoped, did no, it? No, it surely it didn't. I don't know why a lot of people didn't. Maybe they were worried about the privacy aspects. But yeah, there wasn't a lot of uptake, which meant it wasn't very functional. Yeah. You were asking me about proven tech earlier. The only kind of proven contact tracing involves dedicated public employees mm. following up on ill people's contacts. We knew that. Old school, the way we used to do it. Exactly. Um, and the concerns about privacy around those apps, you know, people had to upload fairly sensitive health data, introduce questions about whether people, that's one of the reasons that they didn't take off, you know, where people are uncomfortable mm. using COVID tracing apps. 
that's the kind of data that would be protected by HIPAA if doctors had it, um, but that was suddenly free game once it was offered to an app. So there are other ways in which local governments are using apps to make residents' lives easier. In, in New York City, you can access your SNAP benefits or your cash benefits using your phone. Um, you can figure out how to donate things using your phone. Hmm. Um, the kinds of apps that concern me as a privacy advocate are going to be the ones that collect sensitive data and that fail to safeguard it appropriately. But I have not seen anything like the kind of um, emergency deployment of an app where everyone was encouraged to sign up. Yeah, and, that's, and that would be the case where it can be worried, like, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? I forget who was the politician that once said that. I think it was one of Bill Clinton's advisors. Uh, maybe it was Carville, <laughs> anyway, so, or Stephanopoulos. One of those. One of those guys was famous for making that statement. But that I was actually kind of worried about when the COVID thing came around because that would have been the logical time for the local governments to force everybody to install a, a, a privacy invasive app. And again, from what I rec- just from a purely technological standpoint, there were some there were some apps that I think crossed this line. But the the, the technology built into the operating systems by Apple and and Google and Android. I thought we're actually pretty clever with the way they did it. Now, some apps did take it a step further, and 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 I think there would definitely be some privacy concerns. But situations like that, where an emergency comes up, would be the case. I really worry where that we might be subjected to more mass surveillance through an app like that. I mean, you tempt me to tell you that you know there's another way of answering your question, which is simply to talk about how government agencies are using phone data, full stop. Oh, sure. Uh, so phones, as you suggested, are, are great sources of location data and of a person's texts and social media, other messages. That's a concern when law enforcement or prosecutors get their hands on it. Um, and they certainly are. Well, what worries me actually is is the is the it, it, we have some rights left, uh, a few that we could maybe have within the United States. But when you cross the border, even if you're a U.S. citizen coming back home, and by the way, a lot of the people don't know this, the the border area where these rules apply is defined as within a hundred miles of a U.S. border, which I think I read somewhere like two thirds of the U.S. population lives within one hundred miles of a U.S. border, uh, where your rights are lowered, where the CBP official can take your phone, can have you unlock it and gain access to a lot of information that would normally not be legal. I, I can't believe they haven't closed that loophole yet. Well, I mean, most people actually just hand their phones over to police when requested. It's something that people should know. Just don't give your phone to police. Let's talk about that because that, that, that's something I've been very curious about. So I've heard some people say, you know, you should put a, um, a backdrop on your phone saying, I do not consent to this device being searched you know, to make it obvious. And yet when you're getting pulled over by a cop or you're at the border trying to get home and get, and get through customs or whatever, you know, and they say, let me see your phone. A lot of people are going to be loath to like, oh, what if I don't want to give you my phone or what if I don't want to unlock my phone? What should people do in those situations? Uh, they should refrain from handing over their phone. I, I, I understand. They could be taken though, right? Am I the border patrol at that point can seize the phone, right? They could let you, they, don't, they can't block you from entering the border, for example. But they, I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't know how this varies with like a, a cop pulling you over, but what are your rights in this case? If you say no, what should you expect to happen at that point? Yeah, so I can't speak to CBP, but for most of us, who's going to be pulling us over? Local police. Um, local police can't search your phone without a warrant. I understand that, you know, it's, it's intimidating to be pulled over or to be searched, but you have a right not to yield your phone. And what about, uh, this is a little bit adjacent to that, but what about filming police? 
because that is something that's also gotten very controversial. A lot of police officers don't like being filmed and they'll say you're interfering with an arrest or they'll, they'll come up with some reason why you're, you're not allowed to do it or take your phone. What What are your rights if you see something going down, you know, a situation like I'm getting pulled over. So I want to bring out my camera or my passenger wants to bring out a camera and film what's going on. What yeah. are my rights in that situation? Um, I think, I mean, your, your, your right is, is, is to film exchanges, but who am I to speak? People should be careful with themselves and and attend to their safety in exchanges with the police. If somebody, if a bystander can film an exchange safely, they should do so. Um, but as a fairly privileged person, I'm not going to tell people when, when pulled over by the police, pull out your phone. Police don't have a great track record of behaving themselves and respecting people's rights. As an engineer, you know, I understand the value of this data. When I used to work at Cisco and DevOps, we relied on a ton of automated metrics to monitor our deployed devices. It was really handy. I mean, it allowed yeah. us basically to proactively fix problems and improve our products. I mean, now that's a private thing and not a public thing. I understand that. But I, as an engineer, I'm just saying I get how you might want some of this data to, for these things. So, it, you know, is it possible to utilize this smart city technologies for the good of the community, but kind of eliminate or maybe at least significantly mitigate the privacy problems? Or is it just, is it just gonna, is, are we just doing it wrong and there's just no really good way to do it right? Right. So there's always a, a privacy risk um, and a risk to civil rights when you collect data about people. And the question is, how do we minimize that risk? And is it worth the data collection? Mm-hmm. you got to decide ahead of time what question you want to answer. Then you need to ask, does the data already exist to answer this mm-hmm. question? Is it necessary to collect any more sensitive data to answer the question? If it doesn't, set up a new data collection process, but figure out exactly how granular your data needs to be. Figure out exactly how much you need, how long you need to retain it. Answer those questions. Kick the tires on your model. (laughs) Consult the community and then set up a data collection process. Thereafter, audit it. Uh, Set up firewalls, not to keep out dragons, to keep out police. (laughs) Right. I'm, I'm not a technophobe, right? I work for a privacy organization that's concerned that we not introduce needless privacy violations and civil rights violations when making our cities safer and better. All right. So uh, as we wrap up, if I want to learn more about smart city technologies and maybe the ones that particularly might be used in my area, yeah. uh, how do I find that out? And then if I find something that does worry me, what, what should I do about that? Who can I turn to for help? Who should I go to to say, I don't like this. Can we fix this or, or change this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always tell people not to recreate the wheel. Identify local groups that work on police accountability or tech policy. Join their efforts. If you don't know where to start, find STOP, find the Electric Frontier Foundation, find your local ACLU and ask them who's active in a space. It's what I do when we're working on pregnancy surveillance, right? A new area of concern is surveillance of people who are seeking abortions or gender affirming care. We didn't start thinking about this from scratch. We consulted organizations that have been working on reproductive rights for years, sought their expertise and joined their efforts. So, you know, from one advocate to other aspiring advocates, find people who are already doing it and see how you can help the effort. How about the technology itself? If I was a concerned citizen, there are probably, you know, maybe municipal quarterly reports or someplace where I could see where money's being spent. How how might I know what is being deployed in my area in the smart city tech space? (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, So I'm laughing because um, the NYPD has a a terrible 
record of disclosing its technology. Uh, one thing that I use quite a bit in my research is New York City's Open Checkbook website, um, where I can look, take a look at police contracts or education department contracts and see what's being renewed, how much is being spent, at least for some for, for some expenditures. But but New York City, for example, has it's got a CCOPS law. It's called the Post Act. It's a community accountability law that requires the police department to report on the technology that it's using. So this is the most worrisome smart cities technology that might be out there. But the MIPD, like other police departments around the country, is notoriously poor at actually reporting um, the data that it's required by law to report. So it is. It can be quite difficult to figure out what the most worrisome tech is that be, that's being used in your community. Uh, but you can attend public hearings of your city council's um, tech committee. I would really join up with local groups that are fighting the worst uses of surveillance tech um, and, you know, so-called smart cities tech. Find out what's worrisome in your community. You know, don't start from scratch and from Google. <laughs> now, you said that they were legally required to pr- provide that information. Is that a New York City thing or is that a, is there something federal that says that these local agencies are supposed to let the community know what they're yeah. doing? What- yeah, yeah. I wish there were federal legislation requiring yeah. municipalities to report their surveillance tech. Now, this is a New York City law. Okay. But just for example, so the NYPD recently rolled out some new RoboCops. There is the K5 robot. That. Is that the, 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 the five foot tall subway wandering thing, that thing? Yeah, that's the cone. Um, <laughs> and then there's the terrifying Digidog. Uh, reintroduced yeah, oh despite yes, from, community from protests. Boston Dynamics, those things are, yeah. oh my God. You yes. would expect a new impact and use policy for each of these robots as required under the post act, but instead they've been classified as cameras. So they get a few lines in the existing impact and use policies on situational cameras. Oh my. Yep. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I'm not sure I'm going out of this feeling better, but at least I'm feeling more informed. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Eleni. That that, that was fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Carrie, glad to be here. That was really great and very timely. Uh, it's becoming a real issue in, in cities and not just big cities. This stuff is going to be everywhere, and especially with a lot of third parties pushing this technology onto, you know, local law enforcement offices and saying, hey, we can help. Uh, we can install these things for you for a, for a low, low price. We could manage it all for you and give you the data. Oh, yeah, sure. We're going to keep some of that data, too. And oh, yeah, we might monetize some of that data, but don't worry, it'll all be anonymized. This is going to be a growing problem. And so we need to be aware that these things are happening. And frankly, again, we need like CCOPS kind of laws that require transparency and require notification that these things are happening. And then, of course, again, we need privacy regulations so that all this surveillance data is minimized and not used against us. So uh, Eleni talked about the uh, Stops Beginner's Guide to the All-Too-Dumb World of Smart Cities. I've got a link to that in the show notes. Or if you just want to go to justcities.tech, that is the website. You should obviously also check out Stop's website at stopspying.org. They got some great material there for you, too. Patrons will get bonus content as usual. On Thursday, I asked uh, Eleni some extra questions about how you safely protest and how you investigate governmental surveillance use. Some kind of, you know, grassroots on the ground. If you want to get involved, even if it's not in this issue, if you just want to be involved in other issues but are worried that you might be getting tracked while you do it, some practical advice for folks that might want to do that. All right, so here's what's going to happen for the rest of the year. So I've kind of decided that I need to, you know, build, kind of build in some some time off for myself. Every podcast I listen to, and I listen to plenty of my own, 
take breaks. <laughs> some of them have seasons. Uh, some of them have, you know, whether they do reruns or they just got to go off the air for a while. Uh, I've been doing, you know, 52 weeks a year, basically for six plus years now. So uh, I, I, and while I absolutely enjoy doing it, uh, I want to kind of build in some times where I can kind of work ahead and, uh, and then take some and take some breaks where I can do some other things as well. But I want to make sure that you guys are covered. And I want to make sure that you guys have got something every week to listen to. So uh, we're gonna do a new show, a regular new show. And then we're gonna do some kind of best of episodes. So there's gonna be a best of 2023. That's that's something I've been kind of doing every year for a couple of years now anyway, but I've got a couple other ones I think you're going to find interesting. I'm going to do a best of the bonus material for 2023. These are snippets that normally only my patrons would hear. So you hear me talk about, oh, and the patrons are going to get bonus content this week. Well, I'm going to comb through some of that and pull out some really great snippets from that and give you guys a taste of the kind of things that are in my bonus podcasts. And then since I've been doing this for almost seven years now, I thought it'd be really kind of cool to to kind of dip back into the archives and and pick a couple interesting interview snippets from way back. And so I'm going to actually go back to 2017, I think, or 2018, whenever I started this. And I've, I've got a couple snippets in mind that, that are really good and stand the test of time. So uh, I look forward to bringing those back up. And I'm sure that a lot of you have not been listening that long. And I don't know how many of you actually tried to go back and re-listen to the stuff you missed before you joined the podcast. But uh, I'm going to bring forward a couple ones that I thought are really interesting. And so anyway, this is this is kind of my plan. It's not 100% new, but a lot of it, I'm guessing, will be new to most of you, actually. So anyway, that is what is coming up. Now, I had said I was going to do a promotion in December. I've been really going back and forth on this and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I've done a lot of raffles in the past. I've given away dragons coins in the past. And I'm kind of thinking I want to do something a little different this time, but for the life of me, I can't figure out what. So I might, I might wait until January to run this promotion. We'll see. If I can pull it together in the next week, then uh, I'll do so and you'll find out about it then. Otherwise, we'll probably push that off until January. All right, everybody, that's it for this week. Take care, stay safe out there, and until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs> <laughs>